In September of AD 386, a native of North Africa, who had been a professor for several years in Milan, Italy, sat weeping in the garden of his friend, Alipius. He was contemplating the wickedness of his own life. And while he was sitting there, he heard a child singing, Tole lege, tole lege, which in Latin means take up and read. Take up and read. Sitting beside him was a open scroll of the book of Romans. And he picked it up in the very first passage that caught his eye. Read this way. Not in carousing and drunkenness. Not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality. Not in strife and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. That man later wrote of that occasion. He said, no further would I read, nor did I need, for instantly as the sentence ended by a light, as it were, or security infused into my heart, all the gloom of doubt vanished away. That man was Aurelius Augustine, who upon reading that short passage of Romans received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And he went on to be one of the greatest theologians and church leaders the world had ever known. Just over a thousand years later, a young monk in the Roman Catholic order named after Augustine was teaching the Book of Romans to his students at the University of Wittenberg, Germany. The more he studied Romans, the more he became convicted by Paul's central theme of justification by faith alone. The righteous shall live by faith. He would soon thereafter become the father of the Reformation. His name was Martin Luther. Luther wrote that Romans is the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel. One of his contemporaries of not too many years later, John Calvin, who himself was one of Christianity's greatest and most influential theologians, said about Romans, when anyone gains a knowledge of this epistle, he has an entrance open to him to all the most hidden treasures of Scripture. William Tyndale, who translated the New Testament from its original Greek language into English 86 years before the King James Version came about, wrote this about the book of Romans. For as much as this epistle is the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament, and most pure evangelion, that is to say glad tidings, and that we call gospel and also a light and a way unto the whole scripture, I think it meet that every Christian man not only know it by rote and without the book, but also exercise himself therein ever more continually as with the daily bread of the soul. No man verily can read it too often or study it too well, for the more it is studied, the easier it is. The more it is chewed, the pleasanter it is. And the more groundly it is searched, the preciouser things are found in it. So great treasure of spiritual things lieth hid within. One of the reasons that the book of Romans is so rich with truth is that it quotes the Old Testament more than any other New Testament book. The book of Romans answers many questions concerning God and man, such as, what is the good news of God? Is Jesus really God? If God is good, 
How can he send people to hell? As long as someone is sincere, does it really matter what they believe? Does God hold responsible those who never hear about Jesus? And why is living a Christian life sometimes such a struggle? It's my pleasure today to begin a journey with you through what I believe is the greatest single document ever penned, the book of Romans. And I would ask you to take your Bible and turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. I've entitled this passage, or this series actually, after a very important verse in Romans chapter 11. The title of the series is Romans, Mercy to All. And I would ask that you stand with me, please, in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'll read aloud and you read silently. In Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, Scripture says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his holy prophets, in the, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, I pray that you give us wisdom and insight into this most wonderful of all books. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now I'm going to ask you a question, and I promise that the answer to this question is not Jesus. Okay? Here's the question. If you were to meet someone new at work or at school, what would be the first thing you do? I told you the answer is not Jesus. First thing you do is you'd introduce yourself, wouldn't you? And that's what Paul does here in these verses that we just read. You see, Paul was writing to a group of people living in a city that he had never visited. Now, he knew some of them, to be sure, because some people that he had met along the way had, had ended up in Rome, and he, he names them later on in this book. But for the most part, Paul was writing... This letter, and it's a long one, to a group of people that he had never met. He begins in verse 1, he says again, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. A couple of things I'd want to point out to you from the very beginning. If you know anything about Paul's letters, you know that sometimes he has a partner who he's writing on behalf of as well. Sometimes he says, Paul, and then he gives a little introduction, and then he says, and Timothy. But here, there's no one else that is uh, with him, at least in the writing of this book. And so he's, these words are his own. He owns this. Everything that he says about God, everything that he says about Jesus Christ, everything that Paul says about spiritual things, he owns. This is his. This is his theology. These are his thoughts. And then, so, so please note that, and then he gives us his business card in verse 1. And there's three parts to it. He says, first, I'm a bondservant. That means a slave of Christ Jesus. This idea of slavery was important. It was very widespread in that day, not so much in ours. 
but he called himself a slave of Christ Jesus. He's going to talk later about this idea of slavery in chapter 6 when he tells us how we can be free from our slavery to sin. And the only way, by the way, to do that is to become a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Spiritually, you're going to be a slave to something. You'll be a slave to your own desires, to your own sinfulness, or you can turn that over to the Lord Jesus Christ and be a slave to Him. And the good news is, when you become a slave to Jesus, He really sets you free. And so Paul says, I'm a slave, I'm a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, all of these things that he talks about in these first seven verses, all of these topics, he's going to deal with at length later on in the book. And so he's giving us just a preview here of things, of, of, of topics that he will address in much more detail. And slavery is the very first one of them. So he calls himself a slave of Christ Jesus. Then he says that he is called as an apostle. What does that mean to be called as an apostle? Well, in, in simplest terms, it simply means Jesus gave Paul authority to lead and to teach God's people. He gets this authority, Paul gets this authority from none other than Jesus himself. Paul is saying to these people that he had never met, he's saying, you may not know me, but you need to listen to me because God chose me to represent his interests. And so he sets it out from the very beginning that he is someone that should be listened to. And then the third thing he mentions in verse 1, he gets right down to the core of the matter. It is the gospel. The gospel. He says the gospel is what I've been set apart for. He's set apart for the gospel of God. So the gospel is Paul's purpose in life. It is his mission in life. So what is it? What is the gospel? Well, the word gospel means good news. But it's not just my good news, something good that happened to me. Okay, my good news on a very temporary Setting might be, hey, the Dallas Cowboys won yesterday. Good news for me. I'm a Cowboys fan. It's not just my good news, because that might not be good news to you. It's not just your good news that Paul's talking about. So this isn't just something that happened only to me or only to you. In fact, the gospel is not even Paul's good news. He says he's set apart for the good news, the gospel of God. God has good news. So what is it? Let's find out. Look at verse 2. The good news of God, the gospel of God, is that which He promised beforehand through His prophets and the Holy Scriptures. The good news of God was a promise that God made. Centuries before Paul was writing this, God himself made certain promises. And God keeps his promises. Those promises are recorded for us in the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. The promises of the Old Testament, once you really get into studying them, you begin to learn that they tend to focus on a person. There is a person coming, the Old Testament essentially says, who will fulfill the promises of God. This promised person 
is the one in whom the good news will reside. And this is God's good news for everyone. In verses 3 to 4, Paul gives us one clue after another who this promised person might be. Clue number one, verse 3. This promised person, it says, it's concerning God's Son, concerning His Son. The promised person is the Son of God. But wait a minute. How can God have a Son? I mean, how in the world can God have a Son? Now, we know if a man has a Son, that it takes the help of a woman for a man to produce a child. But how can God have a son? Well, first of all, you might, uh, you might already understand that God is not a man. God is spirit. Man is physical, but God is spirit. And so when we talk about God having a son, we're talking about someone who is of the same spiritual essence as God. If we wanted to talk about it crudely, we'd say, the, the Son of God is made up of the same stuff that God is. But So when you look at God the Father and you look at God the Son, they have the same characteristics. They have the same qualities. God the Father and God the Son are God. Now what we're not talking about is someone who at one time did not exist. There was a time for you and me as humans when we did not exist. Other than maybe in the mind of God. But there was a time when you and I did not exist. You came into existence at your conception. Prior to that, you did not exist. We're not talking about someone like that when we're talking about the Son of God. Because God is eternal. And so the Son of God, likewise, is eternal in His Spirit because God, the Father, is eternal, and God the Father is spirit. So whoever this Son of God turns out to be, it is someone who who emanates from God. That means someone who comes forth from God, ostensibly to carry out some purpose, to do something, to carry out some mission. And so this promised person is the Son of God, Paul tells us. Clue number two. Is also in verse 3. Who was born of a descendant or a seed, born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh. This promised person is a descendant of King David of Israel, who lived around a thousand years BC. Now, there are at least three separate Old Testament scriptures that prophesy that God's promises will be fulfilled by a descendant of David. One of them is in Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2. It says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, that's King David's daddy, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And so this promised person is the Son of God, and yet somehow it is the Son, the descendant of King David. How can this be? How can the promised person be both 
the Son of God and a descendant of King David who's just a human. I mean, that promised person would have to have an eternal spirit and a human body. That promised person would not be able to have a human father and a human mother because that would simply make him human. That promised person would instead have to have God as a father and a human as a mother. But that would be a miracle, wouldn't it? For a woman to have a child without ever having been with a man? wonder who this promised person might be. Paul gives us another clue in verse 4. It says, who was declared the Son of God. Not only is the promised person God's Son, but He is explicitly, in finality, declared to all humanity to be God's Son. But how in the world can humans know whether someone is God's Son? I mean, can't just anyone come along and say, hey, I'm God's son. Worship me. How can all of humanity know that this promised person is different than anyone else who might make the claim? What action must happen that would definitively prove that someone is the son of God? Paul tells us in verse 4, in the next clue. He was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness. You see, this promised person was someone who was resurrected from the dead. And this cannot be overemphasized. You see, if God promises to fulfill His purpose through a person, and that person is resurrected from the dead, then I would say that the resurrection of that person must be the central tenet of the faith. It would be more important that that person was resurrected from the dead than it would be that that promised person gave great teachings or performed great miracles. I mean, many religious leaders have good teachings. Some even claim to have done miracles. But being resurrected from the dead, no one can do that but God. No one can do that but God. Listen, you can follow some politician. You can base your life on some wise teacher or some ancient religion if you like. You can listen to some professor that has a lot of degrees on his wall and he's very proud of those degrees and will tell you how wise and how learned he is. But until any of these people raise themselves from the dead, they don't seem to reach the level of the promised person. You show me the most smart or the most acclaimed person in the world, my question is simply, can he raise himself from the dead? No? Then I'll follow the promised person. The promised person who raised himself from the dead is worth listening to in my book. The promised person who raised himself from the dead may just have some eternal and spiritual wisdom that I don't have. The promised person who raised himself from the dead, he has defeated death. He has the keys to eternal life. I'll follow him. 
Who is this promised person? Paul finally tells us who it is in verse 4. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul finally reveals the name of the promised person. It is Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. That means the Messiah. The Messiah is the promised person that God said would come. And Jesus Christ is Lord. This is a title that is given to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, after Jesus was raised from the dead, He ascended to heaven, and His ascension to heaven was much more than simply His body physically leaving the earth and going up toward the clouds and the the sky and somehow disappearing. It's much more than that. When Jesus was raised from the dead and then He ascended to the heavens, it means that He achieved a title, a status that is given to someone who sits at the right hand of God Himself. He is above any other authority on the earth. He is Lord. Now to be sure, Jesus was already God. Jesus was already Lord. He was already Yahweh due to His nature as God. But as Philippians 2 tells us, Jesus left the glory of God and He added humanity. And in humility, He became that little baby who was born to a virgin and laid in a manger. Philippians 2 tells us that throughout His life, He became obedient to the Father to the point of dying, even dying on a cross. And because of His humility and His obedience, He was raised from the dead and He ascended to the right hand of God. And He has been given a name that is above every name. It is the name Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the promised person. This is the one that Paul says, I'm a slave to Him. Question. What did this promised person do for me? What did he do for me? What has he done for us? Look at verse 5. Through whom, through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Paul says, I've received two gifts from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I received his grace. You know what grace is. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. Because of our sin, we deserve death and hell. We don't deserve any goodness, but God has given us His grace. Because Jesus died on the cross as our substitute, then I have forgiveness of sins. And because He was raised from the dead, I have eternal life. That's the grace of God. That's the grace of God. Paul says he's also received apostleship. Apostleship means, again, that he is called to be God's representative to the Gentiles. Gentiles are people that are not Jewish. Not ethnically or biologically Jewish. Not part of the Jewish faith. It is Paul's responsibility. Jesus, when he met Paul and saved Paul on that road to Damascus, he called Paul to be his apostle his representative 
to all of the rest of the world that is not Jewish. And Paul's goal is to bring about what he calls the obedience of faith. That's a strange term, the obedience of faith. I mean, Paul's established the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the authority. He's the boss. He's the top one that we all have to answer to. That every king on the face of the earth, that every person on the face of the earth will eventually have to answer to. So he's the boss. And so what is our response? Obviously, to obey. That's what you have to do to someone who's your authority, especially as high of an authority as that. We have to obey. But Paul says our obedience is not an obedience of works. In other words, Jesus doesn't say, I'm the boss, do this. I'm the boss, don't do that. It's not, it's not exactly like that. The obedience is an obedience of faith. Whereby, how do you obey the Lord Jesus Christ? By having faith in Him. By trusting Him alone to save you. The obedience that we have in response to the Lordship of Jesus Christ is one of trust, of having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Obeying Christ means believing in Him. This is Paul's calling in life. More than any other man, Paul is the one that God has called to help Gentiles, non-Jews, come to faith in Jesus Christ. This is Paul's life's mission. And so he writes this letter that we've broken up into 16 chapters. This extended letter to people that largely he did not even know because he is so fired up about winning people to the Lord Jesus Christ and helping them have faith in him. Well, why would he write this letter to people living in the capital city of Rome? I mean, what does Paul want with them? Paul wants to preach the gospel in Rome. And he also wants their assistance for a future work. And Paul will get to that and make it explicit in chapter 15. But first, he has to tell them what he's all about. And so here is how Paul wants to begin to involve them in his work. And look, look at verse 6. Paul says, Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I'm not the only one called. I'm not the only one called as an apostle. You're called too, Rome. If he was writing to us, he'd say, you're called too, Broadview. You're called to take the gospel to Lubbock. You're called to take the gospel into your world, your oikos. It's a Greek word meaning your, your household, your sphere of influence. God has a calling on your life. If there was one thing that I would wish that I could convey properly, it would be this, that every single member of Broadview Baptist Church has a calling from God to be His emissary, His ambassador to your world that I can't do. I can't do your job. I can't be the Jesus Christ that the people in your world need to see. You have to be that. You have to present the gospel 
the best you know how. Paul says, I'm called by God. And Rome, you are too. You Christians in Rome, you're right there with me. You Christians in Lubbock, you're right there with me. We're called by God, just as Paul. Verse 7. He finally tells who he's writing to. He says, To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that term, that we are beloved of God. This is a term, beloved, that is usually only used of Jesus Christ. Who is the beloved of the Father? It is the Son. Because the Son has a special love relationship with the Father. But Paul says, we too are beloved of God. That God loves us with such a special and unending love. He simply wants us to respond to Him in faith. Beloved of God in Rome, he says, called as saints. Saints means holy ones. What's that mean? It means those who are set apart. We're set apart from the rest of the world because we have a special mission. To bring the gospel, the good news of Christ, to the rest of the world. We're set apart as saints. And he says, here's his blessing. Two-part blessing. Grace to you and peace. If he was just writing to Jews, he would say, shalom, peace. If he was just writing to Gentiles, he would say grace. Because that was a common greeting to Greeks in that day. Greek-speaking people in that day. But he says, grace and peace. Greek greeting and Jewish greeting. Why? Because we're all one in Jesus Christ. We're all one. It doesn't matter who your mommy and daddy was. It doesn't matter what skin color you are. It doesn't matter what nationality you are. It doesn't matter any of that that we sometimes think is so important. We're all one in Jesus Christ. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And we are all one in Jesus Christ. Paul indicates that. He gives a little clue of that by saying grace and peace. To those of you who are set apart for a special purpose, which is all of us. Listen, the good news of God is not just theology. The good news of God is not just for Paul or a bunch of Christians living in Rome back then. The good news of God is for you. It is for me. Have you come to the point in your life where you personally trust in Jesus Christ alone to save you from your sins and give you eternal life? For you trust in Christ alone. You're not trusting in the Pope or Mary. You're not trusting in your daddy's faith or your grandmother's faith who prayed for you. For you have personally trusted in Jesus Christ alone to save you. Have you ever done business with the Lord and said, today, I need to follow Jesus. I'm nailing it down.